Well, do grab your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 3 with me. And we're working through our series in Ephesians. And where we've been so far, where we have been, has been rich doctrine. We've been taking a look every week at rich doctrine, things from God's word that he's teaching about who he is, about who Christ is, about how Christ works, about how our faith works, about how unity in the church works, especially with Jews and Gentiles, Paul was teaching. And now we're moving to, towards a segment where we get to see the second half of what I call on your outline, rich, doc, rich living. We were in rich doctrine we're moving towards the rich living section. And Paul knows that. And so he ends, he closes the rich doctrine with a prayer. He's closing out this section with a prayer to God for the people. And this is the second time Paul has had a prayer. And so he is going to issue his prayer to them and encourage them. And as I thought this morning, before we read the scriptures, I would, I would put up a picture from a famous movie. This is, this is a picture of Denzel Washington in the movie Remember the Titans. I don't know how many of you have seen Remember... How many of you have seen Remember the Titans? Put your hand up. Okay, most of the church has seen Remember the Titans. If you haven't seen it, you should go and watch it. I highly recommend it. There's parts, obviously, of every movie that aren't great, but this movie does do a good job and um, fam pretty family-friendly most of the time. So it's a good movie. Anyway, the main theme of the movie, though, as you all know, who raised your hands is this football team during what had been segregation is now brought together, black and white, playing in the same football field for the first time. And it's a historic film based off of true events that actually happened. However, much of historic films are obviously made up for fiction for a, to make Denzel win his trophies or whatever it is that he wants to do. But, but a lot of it's made up. But, but they're kind of portraying what they think could have happened in the story. And what the, what the major thing was is the fact that this coach had the task of unifying a team. And throughout the whole movie, his whole purpose, his whole point, his whole aim is unifying his team. They're, they face adversity and struggle, and it runs throughout that whole movie. But he is trying to unite his team to help them understand responsibility, humility, and love for each other. And, and as you see the scenes in the movie play out, that's what he's trying to teach his team. And as the end of the movie comes, towards the end of the film, there's all these beautiful moments you see where, you know, people are calling each other brother, and that's my father, and, and this is my family, don't you see? And it's a beautiful film. The reason is because you take a group of people who have no understanding, really, of what the world is and what's going on around them and how to process it, and the coach does a really fantastic job of helping them understand. And at the end, they get it. And this is what we're going to see in Paul this morning. He takes a group of believers that he's afraid. You might not really fully understand this rich doctrine from the first few chapters. But in order to understand it, he's going to offer this prayer for them. He's going to offer this prayer to, for them on their behalf that they would understand what he's been saying because as he transitions to rich living, just like the coach, if you don't get with the coach's program and understand where he's headed, Paul's saying just likewise, you're not going to understand the rich living part of this book. And so he issues this prayer, and we're going to take a look at it this morning. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14 with me this morning. 
For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be, fold, may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is work at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This morning, Paul starts out with a powerful prayer posture. A powerful prayer posture. He's going to start the second prayer for the Ephesian church, the church in Ephesus, in two ways. Two things he's going to start his prayer with that we see. And it's kneeling and it's knowing. Kneeling and knowing. Look again at verse 14 with me. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. There's no reason here to take this kneeling necessarily one way or the other. You can take it literally, you can take it figuratively, but Paul, I think, literally means it both. He, he means it to mean both things. He starts off by letting them know, as I'm writing this letter, I'm kneeling before the Father in prayer for you. And part of that kneeling is this, that there are a lot of prayer post postures that we see throughout the Bible. In the Bible, there are times when people bow before the Lord in prayer. They stand before the Lord and, and maybe even beat their chest and cry out to the Lord in prayer. There are times when people fall prostrate on the ground and literally lay in the ground weeping and crying in prayer. There are times where you see many postures in, in prayer, but one of them, just one of them, is kneeling in prayer. And one that I really like, because we see in the scripture that one day, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Paul, he, he's telling them, this is what I'm doing on your behalf. I'm kneeling in prayer. Because kneeling in that time was a complete act of submission and reverence acknowledging who was in control. So he starts off his prayer by letting them know, yes, maybe he truly was kneeling, but he starts off by saying, I'm praying this for you, not because I have any power, not because you have any power to make this happen in your life, but I'm kneeling in prayer before the only one who does in complete submission and acknowledging God's authority. So right away, he acknowledges the Father. The Father has this authority. I'm going to kneel before him, and I'm going to let him know my requests on your behalf. Look at verse 15 then. He goes on. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Paul could have acknowledged the Lord as the sovereign one, the holy one. He could have acknowledged him as the magnificent Lord. He could have used any, any number of terms here in the scripture. 
but he uses the word father. And then he not only uses the term father, but he continues in verse 15 to say, he's the father, and you know why he's our father? Because he has given breath to every family on the planet. Your breath that you breathe in, the things that you say, the things that you do, that breath was granted to you by God in the first place. So he's acknowledging, he's kneeling before the Lord in submission, and he is knowing that the Lord is indeed in control. He's the one that's in control of this. He's the one who has given life to all people. He's the one who, when you look around the faces of the people near you, God's blessed them. He has created them. He has allowed them to live. There's a side issue with that, and I won't go there completely, but I want to recognize that fact that, that the Lord has given everyone their breath. He knows each family by name. So, so they can reject him. People around us, they can reject the Lord. But he knows them. He knows their family. He knows who they are. He created them. He gave them their name. He's the one who's in control. I think it's so interesting, a side point, that the world rejects Christ, rejects the Lord, and yet here Paul acknowledges he's the only one. He's our Father in heaven. He's the only one who's given us the right to even have a name in the first place because he's in control. Every family in heaven and on earth derives its name from him. So Paul acknowledges he's, he's in this powerful prayer posture, and part of that is kneeling and knowing the Lord who's in control. And the next segment that we're going to see, the next bit of the scripture then, is four things that I identify with, that we identify this morning. In particular, a prayer for these four things. And so we want to find out what those are. We want to find out what Paul's praying. So look at verse 16 with me. I pray... That out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and in your inner being. The first request Paul makes is for strength. For strength. Internal strength for the believers. Paul has spent a lot of time traveling. He spent a lot of time in missionary journeys. And now he's spending his time in prayer. You have to imagine that as he writes this to them, he recognizes something. He's probably wrestled with something that all of us have wrestled with. The battle for internal strength. How can I do what I can do to make this better? How can I do to pull up my bootstraps, to march forward? How can I do something to change my circumstance? But Paul's been through all of that. And in a very long life of ministry, well, actually a shorter life in ministry, but a very powerful life in ministry, Paul has realized one thing. The strength doesn't come from me. I'm not going to be able to pull myself up by my bootstraps. There's nothing I'm going to be able to do when I'm faced with adversity. So the first thing he prays for them is that they would know this. That they would acknowledge this. That they would experience the strength that only comes from God. See, look in verse 16 again. He prays that out of God's glorious riches, 
He goes back to using terms we've heard all along, right? The rich richness of Christ, the rich gifts of Christ. We've been looking at this rich doctrine of Christ. He goes back to that thought to them. He says, it's out of his glorious riches I've been teaching you about that he may strengthen you. He might be the one to give you the strength and the power through his spirit and your inner being. Acts 1.8 teaches us this. But you will receive power when? When will we receive power? When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, again, this is one of those Sunday mornings where I'm challenged thinking about unbelievers. Because Paul recognizes and Acts right here recognizes, you know where strength to live comes from? From the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from an encouraging neighbor who helps you and blesses you and lifts you up. It doesn't come from your family, although they can encourage you at times. But the strength doesn't come from them. Where true and honest strength that we need to fight, fight our daily battles comes from is the Holy Spirit. He gives the strength we need. He blesses us with the strength that we need in order. In order to what? Still, there's a call for us to be his witnesses, to do something for Christ, to use this power he gives us, and to use that power for Christ. Our inner man is fed by one thing, one thing alone, strength that comes from God. And boy, I don't know about you this morning, but I need his strength. More so than ever in my own week, I've real, my own life, I've realized lately that things are harder, harder than ever before. I need that strength in the Lord every day. Where can we get that strength? From his word. We turn to him. We look to him. And that's the point that Paul makes next. You know, where do we get this strength and what's part of this prayer that he has for this strength? Part of that prayer is for personal depth for them. Personal depth. Depth in their relationship with Christ. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. Now that verse will carry out into the next point. Obviously you can see that. But, but that inner strength that he's talking about, it comes from verse 17, from Christ. That Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And that then because of him dwelling in our hearts through faith, that we are rooted and established in love. What gives that strength? Paul's explaining it. It's very subtle. You might not notice it at first. Look down again at verse 17 with me. So that Christ may dwell. That word dwell isn't just a word he adds in, but instead it's a word that's important. He's acknowledging to them, he's recognizing to them that Christ, he certainly can be in you, but he, is, he, is he dwelling in you? Is Christ dwelling in you? And his prayer for them is that he would be. So what does it look like to have Christ dwelling in you? 
is there personal depth with Christ and is he dwelling in you? That's what he's asking. It's a challenge and a prayer. Is he there? And so I want to quote to you something I read this week from John MacArthur. And he was referencing a little book by Robert Munger. And he, it's the book, title of the book was called My Heart, Christ's Home. And he says this, It was an interesting approach to looking into a Christian's heart. Munger had likened the Christian's heart, his own heart, to a house. And that Christ has come to the house. And in the book, he sort of analogizes, it's a very simple, in a simple way that helps people to understand how our heart can be like a home. And how important it is for Christ to be able to be at home there and be comfortable there. And he says, first of all, that the heart is like a home and it has a library. And then a dining room and then a living room and then it has a workshop. And he said that in the library, the library is kind of like the control room of your heart. The library is where all the data is stored, all the information is stored. And that's your brain. It's like your brain. And when the Lord comes into your house... What will the Lord find in the library? What does he find in the control room, in the brain? Trash, smut, evil, trivility, materialism. What does he find in your brain? I mean, what occupies your mind? Today, it wouldn't be a library. Rather, today, MacArthur says, it would be what? It would be a TV room, right? That's where all the input is stored now, seemingly, that we get from TV. But what does Christ find? What will he find when he opens up your brain? He wants to replace it with the word. And then he said, Munger said in his book, that Christ goes on into the dining room, which is the room of your appetite, where all your desires and your appetites are, are situated. And he wants to know, what do you long for? What's on your menu? What do you order? What satisfies you? What really satisfies you? And he wants to replace all the illegitimate stuff that satisfies you with the will of God so that the will of God alone will satisfy you. And then Christ, he moves to the living room. And the living room is a place of fellowship. And the living room is a place of conversation and being together and cultivating relationship. And in this particular story, Munger gives it that Christ comes into the living room and sits there and sits there and sits there and sits there. And you know what happens? Nobody ever shows up. He says, if this is the room of fellowship, whatever happened to prayer? Whatever happened to communion with God? Whatever happened to fellowship with him? Whatever happened to relationship? And so then Christ stands up and he walks to the workshop. And there at the workbench with all the tools, he asks this question to the person who's living in whose heart he's in, in investigating. He says, what are you making? What are you doing? You've got all this skill, all this manual dexterity, all this tremendous brain power, and you're putting through your hands to affect something. So what are you making with your hands? And the answer, Munger says, is toys. Toys. And he wants to fix it so you're producing some... Christ wants to fix that room in your life so that you're producing something with your hands that has eternal value. 
and gets through all, and then Christ gets through all of that, and it's all kind of in order, and Munger says there's this terrible stench coming from somewhere, and it's the closet. So the Lord, smelling the scent, picks up the scent, and he goes to the closet, and in the closet is something foul, something dead, and it's the place where that person has stored hidden sins. And he throws the door open and Munger says, I was angry. I mean, give me a break. I gave you my library, Christ. I gave you the dining room. I gave you the living room. I'm giving you the workshop. And everybody knows that in every house, if you find the right closet, you're going to discover some things that are hidden in there, especially five minutes before the guests arrive. Everybody has a closet. And that's the close of the quote, MacArthur. And if you caught it with me, what, what Munger is getting at is, is Christ really dwelling in your heart? Is he really there in all aspects of your life? Have you really given all to him? Because there are times where our brains are contaminated. Our appetites are not for Christ. Our living room has no fellowship with him. The one that got me the most studying that this week, reading that quote, the workshop. What am I doing with my hands? What am I doing with my time? The toys that we choose to play with. The things that distract us. And then the closet of hidden sin, where we say, well, Lord, you can have my house. You can have my time. You can have my heart. You can have my brain. You can have all of that. But just let me keep my closet of sin that I, I love so much. And, and what's Paul praying for then? He's praying that they would be rooted and established with one thing. That personal depth. That personal depth is Christ dwelling in you. Have you opened up your life to him? And he challenges them through prayer. I'm praying for you for that personal depth. I want you to have this dwelling of the Holy Spirit, this dwelling of Christ in you, this dwelling where believers have this strong inner man Christ so that Christ is comfortable when he comes to you. He's not having to fuss with something and correct something, but instead the Lord lives comfortably inside of each one of us. Well, then we go on this morning to see Paul prays for something else, and it's caught, like I said, in the end of 17, and it moves into 18 and 19, a comprehension of divine love. I think it's kind of nice how Paul moves naturally. He moves from strength. Hey, you need strength, and we can all agree. We need strength. And then he moves to personal depth, and he says, well, you need strength because your hearts are kind of weak. You're not really letting Christ dwell in you. And part of the reason you might not be letting Christ dwell in you is because I'm praying for you that you would have a comprehension of his divine love because maybe if you understood his divine love for you, 
Maybe then through my prayer, maybe then through your prayers, maybe then through your relationship with Christ, things will improve. So look at, look at verse 17 again, just the second half with me. Through 19. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up, may, you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I think Paul is making a point to them that they needed to hear. He loves, the Lord loves so wide. He's already taught them in this scripture. He loves so wide that he's accepted Jew, Gentile, Asian, African, American, red, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in his sight. Not only that wide, but wide enough that Christ is covered. His love covers the worst and the most vile offender. Remember last Sunday when he said he was the worst and most vile offender and he felt that way? And, he, and to his death, I'm sure he felt that that was true. But guess what? He's pointing out Christ's love was wide enough for me. It's wide enough for Jew and Gentile. His love is wide. Next he moves and he says, his love is so long. What, what does he mean by long is love? What picture is he pointing out? He's picturing this. His love is so long that it's eternal. It goes on and on and on forever. His love for you never ends. It never will. It's so long. That love that he has. And his love is so high. This is a picture that we picture. I catch myself sometimes. I don't know where heaven is at. Do you? I don't know if it's really up there, but it seems to make sense to point up and say it's there. And it seems to make sense to, to Graham to say, point, look up to heaven. It makes sense. I think the highest heavens, the glory of the, the heavens and the heavenly realms and, and creation, look to the heavens. And so maybe perhaps that's where we get some of that theology that maybe the heavens are above us somewhere out, out there in space. But, but either way, I like that picture, that high where, how far does God's love reach to the heavens? It, all the, it reaches all the way. To the highest heavens. The highest heavens where the Bible says he's gone to prepare a place for you and a place for me if we believe. And he loves so deep. How can love someone love you so deep? He loves so deep that he sent his son. He took him out of heaven. He sent him to live a miserable life of temptation, of attack, of ridicule, of mockery. You know, Jesus wasn't really loved by the, that many people. He had his disciples, and even sometimes they questioned him. But he was sent to live there on earth with, for us. And his love was so deep that it wasn't just that he was sent there to live on the earth for us, but he was sent to die for our sins on our behalf on the cross. This cannot possibly be anyone's first Sunday in a church building. Maybe it is. And if it is, let me explain to you something important. 
Jesus didn't die for pastor's sins. He didn't die for lawyer's sins or doctor's sins or the most famous people's sins in the world. He came to die for everyone's sin. The worst, most crooked, most evil person, he died for that person's sin. Why do I say that? Because this, if this really is your first time ever hearing that, that's how deep his love is for you. This is why the scripture is true. It's true. Paul is emphasizing and he's pointing it out, pointing it back out to them. His love is so deep for you that even though you sin against him, he forgives you. He loves you. He's called you his own. He desires a relationship with you. He desires to know you. And he desires that you would understand that his divine love is limitless. It's boundless. There are no ends to the ways in which Christ loves you. No way. And his love not only is boundless when it comes to measurement, but, but the scripture says here, the scripture says here in verse 19, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Everything I've just said to you about Christ's love is a pastor's knowledge of Christ's love. But you know what? Christ's love is so wide, Paul says, that it, it goes beyond knowledge. It goes beyond human knowledge. You can't even understand the type of love in which Jesus Christ loves you and loves me. We can't understand it. It goes beyond knowledge. His unconditional love is the deepest love that we can experience. And even to have a slight understanding of that love, for me, is intense at times. It's intense at times. You get caught in these moments where you realize if I'm doing this and this is the way I'm acting and this is the forgiveness I need, boy, does Christ love me. His love goes beyond knowledge. It surpasses understanding. And so that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. And that's the last point that Paul is emphasizing for them. He gives this love, he gives this understanding, he gives this strength, he gives us that personal development so that we will be filled with all the fullness of God. It's one of those times where I asked myself hard and for a long time and I wanted to be able to understand it. What is it talking about being filled with the fullness of God? What does that mean? And the clue is in the text of verse 19. Just like it was for the love, the same clue is there for the fullness of God. One of the clues. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That love surpasses knowledge, and that fullness of God it surpasses knowledge as well. The fullness of God is so immeasurably big, and yet at the same time, one person came to the earth who had its fullness. 
Jesus is the fullness of God. And he, by some miracle, gives a part of that fullness of God to us. Listen to Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. In Christ, when he was walking on the earth, when he was here, all the fullness of the deity lived in him in bodily form. And verse 10 says, And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. You've been brought to that fullness. Now that fullness is not complete. We will not be completely in the fullness of Christ until we meet him in the sky, Lord willing, or we meet him in heaven. But what is Christ doing right now with us? He's giving a measure. Look at verse 19. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of Christ. He's giving us a measure of it. And it's a measure that does really damage one person in the world most of all. You know who that is that it damages that Christ gives us the fullness of God? Part of it? The devil. It damages him. It damages what he's trying to do. In the Screwtapes Letters by C.S. Lewis, this is explained really well. This is what, uh, Screwtape Letters is a letter written from the mindset of demons to another demon helping them to do good demon things. So this book is written, these words I'm reading are written by a demon who hates God. And so follow along this idea about the fullness of God with me. This is what the demon is writing. He says, he really does want to fill, he being God, God really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively more like his own. Not because he, he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. Now this is just one author's fictional idea of what the demons are thinking, but I think it's so accurate. I think it's so true. He really does want us to fill the universe with replicas of himself. But how does he do that? There is an element in which at the end the demon is right that he wants us to freely conform to his will. How much of my how much of a measurement of Christ can you give? Can you get? Can you receive? As much as you're willing to conform to his will. As much as you're willing. He will lavish his love on you. He will lavish this knowledge on you. He will lavish the fullness of God on us. Paul says, this measurement is there for us. And he prays for them that the fullness of God would be theirs. Would be theirs. So where does that leave us then? Where does Paul take us and where does he close out 
his prayer. What does it leave us with? God is able to do immeasurably more. This whole prayer to me is actually an explanation, a kind of, of what he's going to say in these last two verses. Read with me 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is work at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in, G- in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Paul closes out this piece of his prayer by letting them know, you know what? God, he's not a God of average. God isn't a God of what we expect. What do I expect from God? That's not who God is. God is someone who does immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. I'm touched this week because it says he can do more than we can ask, more than we can imagine, above what Ever, I could ever imagine Christ could do through me. He can do so much more. I think our minds are so minimal when it comes to what Paul is saying there. Because some days I just feel like I want Christ to do the minimum through me. <laughs> help me today to face today, Lord. I need a lot of help. Help me today to know a few things that I should do. When we pray, we're praying very specifically for very specific things sometimes. Lord, help me through this struggle right now. Help me through this problem. Help this to go really well this week. We're kind of limiting our prayers. Paul says, don't limit your prayer. And I'm not going to limit mine. Because you know what? If we put limits on what God can do, we're wrong. Because what God can do is immeasurably more than all that we could ever ask. Or imagine. Our minds are minimal according to what Christ can do. And he closes, his, he closes in, this, in this fashion. And he says, you know what? According to his power that's in work with us, to him be glory in the church. The, the church isn't doing anything. The pastors aren't doing anything. The, the congregation members, they're not doing anything. He's the one who's doing it all through us. And he's doing immeasurably more than we realize. With who? People who are sold out. Sold out to live their life in the way that we saw in the outline before. With strength that comes from only him. With the knowledge and personal depth that it takes to understand Christ. With the comprehension of his divine love for us. And then with the fullness of God, he's able to use us for way more than we could ever ask or imagine. Some of those favorite stories that you've ever read, I think, in your life, have been about stories. The ones that grip us, I think, are the ones about stories from an everyday Joe who does something amazing. From an everyday person who takes a company and makes millions out of it, or from an everyday football person who becomes a star and, and makes it in the NFL, or... LeBron James, people love his story, who came from nothing in poverty and turned his life around and turned the life around for his kids. People love those types of stories, from rags to riches. 
Do you realize that every one of us this morning has that story? Christ took you from nothing. He took you from a sinner. And if you accept him as your savior, he will use you immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine if you're willing to give your life to him. Closes this way. I, I like to have this summary for you because you can go home and you can just cut that part of the outline out somewhere and keep it in your Bible or in your notes. This is a summary of what he says. God gives each of us the strength to know him better. To comprehend his deep love and the fullness of God. And still, he reserves the ability to do more than we can ask or imagine. That's the God that we serve. With gifts like these four above and his ability to do more, only one question remains then for us. What are you doing? What, what are you doing? When Christ comes into your heart and looks around the living room and the dining room and the library and the kitchen and he looks in the workshop and he looks in the closet, what's the condition of your heart? Are you working to serve him? Look at this how I close. Are you growing in the truth and seeking the fullness of God? Bow in a word of prayer with me this morning. Lord, you are so good. Your love extends wide and deep and high. Oh, beyond what we could ever expect. You've given us all these gifts. Paul prays for his church. That they would understand and have a knowledge and have a comprehension. And have a personal deep relationship with Christ. Because he's going to talk to them about living a life that is worthy of the calling you've called us. Help us, Father. Help us. Help us to desire to give you all of us with nothing in reserve. Help this prayer to be true of us. And Father, at the end of the day, I'm amazed. This church family, you will do things that are immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. If we are faithful to you. Help us to be that, Lord. Help us to understand you better. Help us to draw near and dwell in your house all the days of our life. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.